Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Well, hello, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, and today Tim Cockrell is here back at the table. Tim and I will be discussing his sermon from this past Sunday, focusing on the passage in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. So Tim, welcome back, of course, and great to have you with us, and I'm glad to be able to spend some more time with you. Absolutely. Well, we jumped him into the second half of the letter this week, the letter to the Philippians, and and we made good headway towards the end. Early in your sermon, you put a word back into the play that you had highlighted in the kickoff to the series back a few weeks ago, and that's the word joy. If I'm recollecting appropriately, I think you said 15 times it appears Mm -hmm. in the book, in the letter, uh, you shared the definition from Kay Warren. And by the way, if you're listening and you want to go back to that definition, listen to the the on-demand version and... And uh, you can hear Tim sharing that. But you also shared that joy is an attitude we choose that leads to actions that we do. And it's been a while since that first sermon. So let's talk again and, and remind ourselves about how it's possible to be joyful when we're not really feeling it. Absolutely. Well, and that's where I think Kay Warren's definition is really helpful because it gives us a a few different facets of what this looks like. Because many times when we think about joy, we think about a version of happiness. But the word happiness suggests that our emotional state depends on our happenings, the things that are happening around us. Whereas joy is an attitude that we choose. It, It is a choice That's why Paul can command it. You know, if it was a feeling, you know, I can't command you, be happy. But a attitude is a matter of viewing life from a Christ-centered perspective. That no matter what's happening, whether today was the day you got a cancer diagnosis or that today was the day you got a, a promotion or had a baby, that you can choose joy because you are in Christ, you are accepted by Christ, you are indwelt by Christ, and that therefore you have in you the power to face whatever it is that you're dealing with, this idea of joy means that my contentedness, my hope, don't rest in this life, but in my Savior who holds hope for me in the present as well as in the future. And it's not easy. It's certainly countercultural to what we see around us because joy is all about how you feel. Right, and that's why it's a discipline for us as believers, and that's why Paul deals with it in a variety of different ways, talking about not being anxious, talking about choosing contentment, and even choosing humility and selflessness that says, you know, ultimately what Christ wants is most important because he's my whole life, and if I'm living for him, that puts things in right perspective. And this is where the body is important. Uh, I just was on the phone with the son of a couple, a dear couple in our church. You were at their house, I Mm -hmm. believe, this morning. And I'm guessing that that's something you reminded them of, of that joy that we can have even when mother passes away. Absolutely. And, And that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where faith really ends up being lived out. We can all give lip service to trusting in Jesus when everything's going well and there's money in the bank account and we're feeling good. But when things get hard and unexpected loss hits, that's when our faith is revealed and refined. And so, yeah, in that conversation this morning, we really focused on the hope that we have because of heaven and the the present comfort that we have because of Christ. And those are sweet times when we're often more ready to hear that kind of thing. Yep. 
even though it's hard. Well, Tim, starting in verse 2, Paul comes down pretty darn hard on those <laughs> who are insisting that, that obedience to the Jewish law must accompany faith for salvation to be real. And of course, these are Jews or those who have been heavily influenced by Jews, but probably Jews. He calls these people dogs, and you laid it out pretty clearly. That was not a term of endearment mm-hmm. that he was using. We often apply this principle today to to you know any kind of modern day legalism. That's what he was dealing with. So so let's talk about in this in the context of families, for example, whether it's a church family or our mm-hmm. our core families, our nuclear families. One of your children approaches you and says, "Dad." I really don't think I agree with why we do this or don't do that. These rules you and mom have set seem legalistic to me. Your response. Man, that's a good one. It's a loaded question. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Well, I think the key distinction here is, are we keeping the rules in order to gain right standing, in order to deserve acceptance, or are we keeping these rules because we've already received right standing? And been granted by God's grace acceptance. So that's what's hard is two people can do the same exact thing, but with a very different understanding of what's being accomplished there. They might keep the same rules or follow the same pattern of spirituality. And so if one of my kids were to to kind of present that objection, I would really want to talk through, well, why is it that we do the things we do or don't do the things that we do? Because God cares far more about our heart attitude behind the thing. I mean, you think about in the Old Testament, how many times did people offer the sacrifices, which God had said you need to do, but from a heart that didn't please God at all. And they imagined, well, God must be really happy with me because I'm, I'm checking all these boxes. And it's like, no, I'd rather have mercy than sacrifice. And even Jesus, when he interacts with the Pharisees over and over says, well, that's fine that you're tithing your mint and dill and cumin, but I'd really rather you pay attention to the the weightier matters of the law without neglecting the obedience that I've called you to. And so I like the phrase that the gospel is not opposed to effort, but to earning. And so if we understand that our effort is not earning us right standing, but rather is a reflection of our right standing, I think that gives us the foundation to begin obeying from the heart out of a, a heart of love rather than guilt or shame. And one of those places we're reminded of that, Romans chapter 4, uh, Paul makes it very clear that Abraham, the father of the faithful, was not saved by adhering to God's command to be circumcised mm-hmm. or anything else that came after that in the law of Moses and so forth. But it was faith. Exactly. And I think we just have to recognize there's a gravitational pull in every one of our hearts toward this distortion of the gospel that somehow we add by our works or that we make a first move or take the initiative by our works. And that's where God's sovereign grace is complex or sometimes as hard as it is to understand is so incredibly comforting that it was while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And it is before the foundation of the world that God began the process of initiating our salvation. You use the word grace and God's sovereign grace. I want to take that same word and I want to apply it in the context of the body of Christ, mm-hmm. the local church. Um, there are families and individuals at Grace who do or don't do certain things. Mm-hmm. They have convictions about things that they should or shouldn't do. Uh, other families, other individuals may not have the same convictions. Let's assume for a moment that everybody has these convictions for the right reasons Mm -hmm. in an effort to help them to uh, uh, obey what God wants them to do. How do we deal with that? Um, 
so it's okay for you to do this and it's not okay for me. And, and let's get beyond maybe what the kids are thinking, but it's very difficult when one person, it can be difficult. Let's just mm-hmm. say when one person has a conviction and we could name a number of different types sure. of areas, but let's not get specific. <clears throat> How do we deal with that within the body when people have different convictions about what's right for them? Mm-hmm. Right. And that's where I think we need to bring in conversations about Christian liberty. You know, we see that in First Corinthians, we see that in the book of Romans, uh, as far as whether it's meat sacrifice idols or some of those types of things, that we can and should develop our own convictions about certain things. But we need to be very careful that we don't draw a conclusion that says, well, you can't be a good Christian if you fill in the blank. Because that's essentially what these Jewish um, teachers were saying is you can't be a good Christian if you don't keep the Sabbath and the purity laws and those types of things. And so I think listening to others, understanding that there's room for liberty and keeping the main thing, the main thing, because I mean, you know, you said, let's not get into specifics, but I'm, I'm going <laughs> to venture into it. Yeah. When we begin to say, well, you, if you are a Christian, you can't drink alcohol, otherwise you're not a good Christian. Or if you're a genuinely a committed Christian parent, you'll homeschool your children because you shouldn't put them in the public school. Or if you're a genuine Christian, you're not going to listen to this type of music or go to see this type of movie or fill in the blank. Whether you realize it or not, you're introducing a certain level of works righteousness. Now, I think you can have nuanced conversations there that say certain things don't fit the Christian worldview, and we can have those conversations as to where that line is, but we just want to be really careful that we are not being self-righteous about our choices and, and then maybe condescending or condemning of someone else who doesn't make the same choices we would. You referenced Acts 15, and we can walk through, especially Paul's letters, mm-hmm. where he deals with this kind of thing, and, and food offered to idols, and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Uh, just uh, so important to differentiate conviction uh, about freedoms that I have mm-hmm. versus other people's different convictions. Absolutely. And Keeping the gospel true to grace, mm-hmm. Right. Good, good. Well, uh, let's keep on going down verse by verse. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of statements that Paul makes that are not problematic, but I think are, just add to the discussion. He tells the church, "We are the circumcision." Mm-hmm. Now, if you'll excuse the pun, can you flesh this out a little bit for me? What the context of exactly what Paul is saying? We are the circumcision, mm-hmm. but we're not required to be circumcised. Right. Well, I mean, we, we trace this all the way back to Abraham, as you've already mentioned from Romans chapter 4, that circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, that participants in the covenant with God were circumcised. And therefore, to be the circumcision meant you were God's chosen people. You were uniquely and covenantally related to God. And so very likely, these false teachers were puffing themselves up saying, we are the ones who are circumcised. We have already been set apart and and recognized as God's special covenant people. And what Paul's going to do is, is, as he has even with some of his insults in verse two, he's going to turn it around and say, you keep saying you're the clean ones and we're the unclean ones, that you are the circumcision and these other people are the uncircumcision. But in fact, it is through faith in Christ that you have entered into a covenant relationship with God that is a new covenant that doesn't come by cutting the flesh or the body, but comes by giving you a a new heart and a new willingness to obey. And so what he's essentially saying is 
these people are the true people of God. And you who are holding to the law as your basis of approaching him, you think that you are on his team, <clears throat> but you're really working against him. And this gets back to the idea that uh, I think we can safely say the New Testament, certainly a lot of, uh, of original information, but the New Testament is in one way a commentary on the Old Testament. And we have a, a situation where Abraham was called to be circumcised and all Jews after that mm-hmm. you know, as a sign of the covenant. But it wasn't the circumcision that brought them in their faith. Again, going back to Romans 4, and Abraham was mm-hmm. saved by faith, just like us. Yes. Tim, Paul lays it out pretty clearly in verses 4 through 7. He says, that if anyone has a right to boast in, in how he keeps the law, it's him. It, it, let me be proper English. It is he. Uh, he has, Paul has all the right credentials to claim salvation if it actually does depend on keeping God's law. But he says, and you illustrated this very beautifully the other day, he's thrown all of those credentials away. And he says, it's because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This really seems to go back uh, to what we talked about here a couple of weeks ago, and that is the whole idea of humility, realizing, hey, there's really nothing I can do. Even if I'm being faithful, Mm -hmm. that's not what saves me. It's a result of being saved, but it's relying purely on the work of Christ. Yes. Yeah. Humility is a proper view of God and a proper view of ourselves. And so that's what happened for Paul when he was on his road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. He was breathing threats, literally, uh, against these believers, and God arrested him on that road. And in that moment, he caught a glimpse of the, the risen Christ, and he was blinded by that glory, and he was struck by the fact that he thought he had been serving God by killing Christians, and he soon became one himself. And so what Paul, I think, is trying to help us to do is to recognize every one of us trusts something for right standing, for acceptance, for popularity, for recognition. But he says most of the things we naturally gravitate toward are not only worthless but deceptive. They actually lead us further away from the very thing that our heart needs most. And so any of these credentials or his nationality or his education or even his, his obedience to the law as a Pharisee, he doesn't just view them as neutral. He views them as garbage because he sees his sin in all of its brokenness. And by seeing his sin at its depths, he begins to understand the magnificence of God's grace. And that for him was the, the, the turning point. And so what he's trying to do, I think, for his readers is to remind them of the gospel. That, that don't be, think that you begin by God's grace, but then you somehow maintain it by, God, by your effort. No, any of your efforts in and of themselves are filthy rags to God. He's not impressed by your resume. He's nauseated by it. But if we set those things aside and put our faith in Christ, that's when we begin to discover the joy that comes from knowing him. And let's be sure to say it's not only the individual that has to deal with this. Uh, I know that sitting in elder meetings, Mm. we often have to, if not explicitly, we have to remember as we're dealing with matters, Mm -hmm. why are we even dealing with this? Mm -hmm. I mean, why are we bringing this program? Is this in keeping with our goal of worshiping? And honoring God, or is this just? A, I, I've heard, I've heard pastors uh, go to conferences, and one of the first things that can be said is, "Oh, tell me about your church. Mm-hmm. How big is it? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, how many people do you have? Yep. 
Now, it's a natural question, but that even that is a tendency to look at the results rather than the work in the heart that's being devoted to God. Absolutely. I think there's so many distortions and distractions that we have to be on guard against that Paul's illustrating what that looks like for him, but we need to then apply that to our context. We may say, well, I'm not a Pharisee, you know, or I'm not somebody who uh, was a tribe of the Benjamin, but what we have are just as dangerous uh, distortions of things we might be distracted by or drawn toward. Hmm. Verse 10 says, and Paul says, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. So we have here a reference to suffering, to sharing in the sufferings of Christ. I got to tell you, that also doesn't give me the warm fuzzies, but I'm working <laughs> on it. We don't see much of it here in our part of the world, this suffering, idea of suffering for Christ, to be very frank. But, but in many places, being a Christian is not only an invitation, it's actually placing yourself in the way of suffering. So can you talk a little bit about how the, the let's call it the American church person or church man, church woman, church individual, how we should be interacting with this passage. You know, some people say, if you're not suffering, you're not serving the Lord. Well, yeah, we got to be careful with that kind of sure. comment, but how can we be really interacting? How can we best understand this and, and really apply it? And Absolutely. For, for it. You know, the verse that comes to mind is when Jesus says, if anyone desires to be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And many times when we think about suffering for Jesus, we imagine the person that's imprisoned in China or the person that's threatened with martyrdom in Egypt. And without a doubt, those are are really difficult forms of suffering. But every time we have to deny ourselves to pursue Christ's mission, every time we have to set aside resources that we would rather spend on ourselves and invest them for the sake of the kingdom, Every time we endure being misunderstood or mischaracterized, that falls under the general umbrella of suffering for Christ's sake. And so I think what we need to focus on is rather than, you know, we might face suffering someday, is how do we live in such a distinctive and countercultural manner that we suffer well now, even if it's in small ways? Because if we're not willing to speak up for the things that God really cares about or be quiet about the things that God doesn't ultimately care about, even if it's inconvenient or uncomfortable for us, then we're not really prepared to take those bigger stands. So when uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 12 says, if anybody desires to live a godly life, he will suffer for Christ. I think the point there is that the more we are infused with Christ and permeated by his character, the more we will radiate that to those around us. And therefore, we should expect rejection, misinterpretation, um, mocking at times. And so whether we experience that in small ways or in big ways, it's ultimately about being faithful in the opportunities God's given us. You bring up two specific areas there, Tim, and you, you mentioned the idea of speaking into the culture and speaking mm-hmm. up when we are confronted with a, an opportunity mm-hmm. to share a biblical uh, worldview of a particular issue. And there is a host of them mm-hmm. in our world today slamming into us at all times. The other thing you speak about is the idea of giving. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would like to go there and mm-hmm. just talk a little bit uh, financially. Um, God 
does not give finances and assets to us just to enjoy. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what suffering might look like mm-hmm. for a, a family who has been blessed? And, and let's face it, the, probably the most, uh, the most needy or, or the least wealthy mm-hmm. of our families at Grace Baptist Church in the whole, within the context of the whole world, probably, I, I have no idea. It's certainly in mm-hmm. the top uh, 25%, but probably the f- top 5 to 10% worldwide mm-hmm. as far as income and assets. Can we talk a little bit about how that should influence specifically our, our uh, stewarding of our resources? Yes. Well, and I want to be clear, I'm, as I'm thinking back to what I said, I, I certainly don't want to suggest that giving is a form of suffering. But I understand. I, right? But I want to be clear that I do think giving is a means by which we can sacrificially demonstrate to to Christ what he is worth to us. And to the world. Exactly. And so I think what we want to do is think through what does it cost us to follow Jesus? What aspects of things that we might prize or prioritize do we need to lay down? And so there's certain principles that are helpful of if I'm spending more on a vacation in a year than I give to the church, there's probably some things that are out of balance there. You know, if it's more important to me that I drive a certain type of car or live in a certain square footage home than it is that we are supporting missions or giving to the initiatives of, of uh, the church, then I perhaps have my priorities out of balance. And so I think that's where giving is a joy as well as a discipline to constantly be calibrating our perspective based on God's priorities. And so I would encourage, you know, as you talk about families, talk about this with your kids. Engage them in in giving. You know, one of the ideas that somebody shared with me this past Christmas that I really liked was they talked about that growing up, their family would give them a hundred dollars at Christmas time to go use to bless somebody else. And so they had to come up with the initiative, the idea of who are we going to bless? Are we going to give you know several people twenty dollars somethings, or are we going to you know pool our money and do something really big for one family that really needs it? And that that was instilling in them this principle of of sacrifice and generosity that should characterize all of us. Very good. And and in the context uh, specifically of speaking to uh, cultural issues, um, there are opportunities everywhere. Uh, And and even, uh, let's be quite frank, our doing a podcast like this, mm-hmm. uh, we we have it somewhat scripted, but it's uh, we we stray from that script regularly, even now. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea of dealing with some of these things, this is out there for the world to see. And I've thought sure. through this. Mm-hmm. It this is dangerous mm-hmm. in our world for an individual who's in business like mm-hmm. I am to do that. And I I get that. Uh, and I'm not holding myself up at all to be some paragon of virtue. But the fact is, we need to be addressing what the Bible says about world issues and not be afraid to say, actually, this is wrong. And this is why we believe this. Mm -hmm. Yep. Absolutely. But not in any like finger pointing, you know, head wagging kind of a way, but in a a way that recognizes so much of the world is blinded by sin and deceived by Satan that we long for the world to see the beauty of the gospel, the wonder of God's forgiveness and the freedom that comes with it. And as we are stating, as you say, as we're stating the what Scripture we believe obviously says about certain you know matters, then are we willing then to go put our arm around that person? Mm-hmm. As I believe Jesus would mm-hmm. say, "Look, I love you, and I and I want to be with you, even if they don't want that arm around them. Well, you know, be careful not to leave it there. But in fact, we've got to be loving those mm-hmm. people." 
Tim, I know that sometimes I personally can be so fixated on living righteously in the here and now that I can forget about the great joy that's coming down the road. You know, Paul references here in verse 11, the resurrection from the dead. He says, assuming that I will somehow reach or attain, it's, it's, is the word used elsewhere, the resurrection from among the dead. And so I don't worry so much about yesterday. I worry more about today. I don't worry so much about tomorrow because I'm thinking, okay, if I'm faithful today, I, I know that that's where I, what I'm supposed to do. But Paul points to the resurrection from the dead. First of all, can you tell us why that's so important? And then maybe fill us in a little bit and give us your perspective, what the scripture says about what the resurrection of the dead really is. Man, how much time do we have? That's, that's, uh, <laughs> yeah, 30 words or less. got a great depth to it. <laughs> I, I think what you said is so true that we can get so nearsighted, so fixated and focused on the present that we lose sight of, of the hope that's still on the horizon. And, and I think that can make us forget that we haven't arrived. It can make us forget that this home, this world's not our home, that this isn't ultimately our citizenship. And so I think that's why Paul is orienting us to the fact that we have are being filled with God's resurrection power. We are experiencing the sufferings that Christ himself did, but ultimately that our hope is that Christ is going to return. And he says, I don't know whether it's going to be I'm already dead and he raises me from the ground or that I'm still alive and he brings me up to meet him in the air. But I think the point there is I am going to see Jesus face to face. That in that day, I'll leave behind sin and suffering and sadness and I will experience perfect peace and unbroken joy. And, and that is a motivation to continue pressing on it's an orientation to remember what's ultimately important in this life. And I think then that's what Paul makes clear later on in this passage that Cam Sardano is going to be preaching for us this week in verse 14. He says, I press on toward the goal, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That, that we are pressing on toward a finish line. And that finish line is that we will be with Christ and Lord willing here, well done, my good and faithful servant. So when we think about the resurrection, we know that when we die, we immediately go to be in God's presence, to be out from the body is to be present with the Lord. But that many times when I'm doing a funeral, we lay the body down into the ground. And the thing that we often will comment on at that point is we are waiting for the resurrection of the dead. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is one of my favorite passages related to this. That he says, I don't want you to be uninformed because we grieve, but not as those who have no hope. But those who have died will actually be resurrected and taken up to meet Christ in the sky before those of us who are living on the earth. And so he ends that passage by saying, so comfort and encourage one another with these words. So when we think about Easter, that's coming up just a few weeks away, the whole hope of the resurrection is predicated on Christ's resurrection. And because he emerged from the, the tomb, we recognize that death is not the end, but that our spirit as well as our resurrected body will be with God forever and eternity. And I'm just hoping that my resurrected body has hair, but we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> well, and we're going to be, everything's going to be set back to perfection mm -hmm. is what we understand from scripture. Uh, we can get an idea of what that looked like, a little bit of an idea in Genesis. I'm reminded of the song from uh, from Casting Crowns. A friend of mine just recorded this uh, on a new album, but he said it says uh, the only scars in heaven mm -hmm. will not belong to you and me. That's right. And 
that the, the Christ is going to have those only scars, right? We believe, uh, or at least his resurrected body when he ascended had those scars, reminders of what he did for us. But uh, it's going to be wiped away. It's going to be no sorrow, no pain. Can't imagine. But boy, I look forward to that. Absolutely. And we should. And we should. Hey, Tim, thanks for your time. Appreciate And we have uh, those of you who are listening and say, where were you on Wednesday when you usually post this? We just were, we were sick. We were at doctor's appointments. We were taking kids here and there. We were busy and sorry mm-hmm. we didn't get right to it. We're a day late, but thanks for your grace in that. We have been digging deeper today with Tim Cockrell, and you can access Grace Sermons and podcast episodes on demand by visiting gracecedarville.org on the World Wide Web and clicking the media tab. We also encourage you to share your questions and comments with us each week by emailing them to contact at gracecedarville.org. Plan to join us next time. We'll be continuing our discussion of God's Word here in Philippians chapter 3. And until we meet again, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you for tuning into this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.